weeks left in it as we go. And uh, the week after our missionary friend Luke is here, we'll, we'll wrap it up. So we're, we're excited for that. Uh, then we're going to begin another series called Seven Psalms for the Season. And we'll, we'll dive into seven different psalms. But today, this, uh, the message is titled, That He Was Buried. And that actually comes from a different text within the scriptures. It comes from 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul presents the gospel to the Corinthian church. He says, For I delivered you as of first importance, that what I also received... That Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. We love to talk about the cross, but we have to remember the fact he was buried. That is a pivotal point in the story. The truth of our text today is a, is a truth worth living for, it's worth suffering for, it's worth being mocked for, it's worth dying for. If you will, Calvin, go to the next slide. You don't have to show the camera on me, I'm going to walk around for a minute. You probably can't see this very well, but what you're looking at on the screen is what's called the Alexamanos Graffito. It's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, form of graffiti in the world. It was found in Rome. It dates back to around the 200s. And you can't really tell very clearly, but, but there's a man over here to the left kneeling before what appears to be a, a half man, half donkey on a cross. Because the idea of the Roman mentality, the, the Roman mentality is that surely if Jesus was a God, he must be a donkey of one, foolish enough to let himself get crucified. And it's not just mockery of Christ, it's mockery of this man by the name of Alexamanos. And underneath it in, in the Greek is the word Alexamanos Sabete Theon. It says very crudely, Alexamanos worships his God. I'm telling you this morning, one of the oldest forms of graffiti on planet Earth is mocking a Christian who believed in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The name Alexamanos, by the way, it means I defend power. Or I, I defend strength. And he was a Roman soldier. He was someone who had converted around the, the late hundreds, early 200s. And he was outed as a Christian amongst his peers, amongst his fellow Roman soldiers. And one of them thought it would be funny to mock him and mock his faith and mock his God. But in the next chamber over, there's another inscription. And it reads simply, with no picture, Alexamanos the Faithful. The truth of our text this morning is worth being mocked for. It is worth living for. It is worth dying for. It's important that we talk about the death and the burial of Jesus because without the death, without the cross, we get no resurrection. And without the resurrection, we have no hope. As a friend of mine told me this week, we get 
no crown of Christ without the cross of Christ. I'm not going to ask you to stand this week, but will you read with me beginning in verse 33? And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthini. And it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. And went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Church, I've said this as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Your life imitates your theology. What you believe about Jesus, what you believe about God, it sticks out in your life. And before the Christian truly understands the resurrection, we must fully also understand the importance of of Christ's death and burial. Church, it's in this moment, in this text, what we're reading about, it's in this moment the Christian's debt is paid in full. It's in these last few hours of Jesus' life where the debt of sin for us was paid in full. This atonement matters. No other religion on earth except Christianity has an atonement. John Owen once said, All peace with God is resolved into a purging atonement made for sin. In other words, there can be no Christian. There can be no church. There is no way we can be right with a holy and righteous God without the cross of Christ. Without the atonement he was for our, for our sin. Without his death, we are still enslaved to our sin. We're still in debt. We would still need the Old Testament sacrifices to cover us because the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden still permeates our, our DNA, still infects our very being. 
still enslaves us with lusts of our flesh, greed, envy, hatred that we, that we carry every day. And without his death, without his burial, there can be no resurrection which provides for us true hope. When the Christian's debt is paid in full, that's when we're truly set free from the burdens that enslave us to our sin. And it does not happen without the cross. It does not happen without what we are seeing take place in this text. Now the way Mark lays this out, this story, he's going to focus on the death of Jesus and then he's going to pan back just a little bit. And we're going to see what's happening around the cross and he's going to pan back a little bit further and, and we're going to see what's happening in a wider spectrum. And then, then he's going to pan all the way back and we're going to see the burial take place in those steps. But the first thing he focuses on is Jesus' death. He says in verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour, that tells us this is a little bit after noon. This would put us about halfway through the six hours Jesus spends on the cross. Mark is using the Jewish reckoning of time once again. But something incredible happens in this moment. Something the Jewish people had, had actually previously, the Pharisees, the, the Herodians, the, the Sanhedrin, they'd all come to Jesus, they'd ask for what? A sign. They wanted a sign in the heavens. And here it is, as the heavens grow dark. And darkness envelops the earth. This darkness is actually a mark of divine judgment. God has mentioned this several times throughout Scripture. The Old Testament prophets, from, from Moses to Jeremiah, from Amos to Joel, it's something that everyone would not only see and experience, but understand when it happens. Specifically, Amos, in Amos 8-9, he spoke of a darkness that would happen during this crucifixion. He says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Well, Mark wants us to understand this is not an eclipse. This is not something natural that happens. This is a supernatural darkness. The text, in fact, actually seems to mean that it expands beyond Judah, possibly throughout Palestine. It's possible that darkness covered the whole known world, if not the entire earth. In fact, there's actually evidence that this was seen as far east as China. The chronicles of the emperor Guangyu read, uh, sorry, Guangwu read, Yin and Yang have mistakenly switched and the sun and the moon were eclipsed. The sins of all the people were on one man. Pardon was proclaimed to all under heaven. Even they, someone who didn't know the Jewish faith, didn't know about Jesus. In that moment, this darkness, they understood what was happening. It's interesting. The darkness expands through the sky during his death. Earlier in Mark, Mark had said darkness would also herald the sun's return. He said, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the point Mark is emphasizing again is this is a supernatural, miraculous darkness. It covered them for at least three hours until at the ninth hour, verse 34 reads, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthini? which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now David actually predicted these words back in Psalm 22. He wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? When Jesus cries out with this, this is more than just a cry of someone who is suffering. More than just a righteous man affirming, trying to affirm his faith. This is not Jesus just simply feeling abandoned. This is not just simply Jesus expressing his humanity. This is absolutely, and I want to make sure you understand this, this is not Jesus having a moment of doubt. It's in this moment, Jesus is bearing the curse of sin and God's judgment on that sin within the very marrow of his bones. Paul explains it to us. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He says to the Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is in this moment he experiences the unfathomable horror of separation from a holy God who cannot bear to look upon sin. The prophet Habakkuk says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Maybe you've heard in your life, you shouldn't ask God why. It's a sin to ask God why. That's simply not true. Jesus says why. And yet his asking was not for his benefit, but for us to understand the why. And the why is laid out for us by the apostles when Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Paul says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the beauty of the cross. How beautiful and, and wonderful this moment in history truly is. Especially if, if to no one else, to the believer. To those who understand this moment. And Mark begins to show us the events that surround it, that the entire meaning of the moment, it's actually lost on those who were standing there that day. It's lost on the religious leaders and, and those who would continue to mock him. And it's lost on many professing Christians even now, even today. Verses 35 and 36 read, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. You see, the crowd hears him, and they misunderstand him. They hear Eloi, Eloi, which is Aramaic, and they think he's calling for Elijah. Mark clarifies that's not what Jesus had said. He says, why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken means why have you abandoned me? Why have you rejected me? Why have you left me behind? It's fully emphasizing what Mark has been telling us for some time. Jesus is utterly alone under this wrath, under this burden of sin. He's not calling Elijah. He's calling out while the sin of the world infects his body. They don't understand this. They can't see this. Because it's something that's, that's taking place in the spiritual world. And if their eyes could see it somehow, their brains would explode under the, the sheer weight of it all as they could not comprehend it. 
And so someone, in an actual attempt of mockery, the mockery of Christ, runs to grab a sponge and they fill it with sour wine. This would have been a, a drink pretty handy. It was actually the drink, the common drink of the soldiers. It was basically the same as drinking vinegar. It was a gross wine. And it's here that Jesus fulfills that prophecy I mentioned last week, Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. They're not going to try and balance it on a cup or, or put it on a pitcher and try to pour it so he can actually drink it. They take a sponge, they dip it in the, in the pitcher, in the, in the liquid. They shove it on the end of a stick long enough to reach his mouth and then they, they shove it in his face. Just hoping that maybe some of the moisture will drip between his lips. Were they really thinking Elijah was going to come? No. It's only to further mock Jesus all the more when Elijah does not show up. They say, wait. In the Greek, it's actually the plural, you wait, meaning to a crowd. They're speaking to groups of people, to all the soldiers nearby. All the bystanders say, leave him alone. Let's, let's see what's happening here. In Matthew, we're told something similar. Others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And the idea that we should understand is possibly one of the soldiers sees Jesus' suffering so much and he's so moved by it, he's probably ready to end his suffering right there with a spear or sword. So they say, wait, no, 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 stop. Elijah might come. Jesus has already told his disciples Elijah will come to restore all things as Christ and the spirit of Elijah will restore. And he also says in a metaphorical way that, Christ, that Elijah has come and they did to him as they pleased and they understood he was talking about John the Baptist on the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet all of this is lost as it always has been, lost to those who don't understand, don't want to understand, don't seek understanding. They didn't listen to his teachings. They didn't heed what he had warned them about. They weren't looking for a Messiah to overthrow the kingdom of Satan. They wanted a Messiah who'd overthrow Rome. And again, that's why I would tell you once more, theology does matter. It mattered then and it matters to us now. It matters as the cross reaches its conclusion. Verses 37 and 38, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. John tells us something interesting. John tells us in that loud cry, his last word is issued. Now in English, it's we understand it, we interpret it, we translate it as it is finished. But in the Greek, it's actually one word, tetelestai. And it's a word they would write on receipts. If I, if I were to borrow money from someone and when I paid them back, they would write tetelestai, paid in full. Paid in full. Because when he was done, the debt was paid in full. Christ has paid our debt to sin. And with a loud cry, it's over. He's breathed his last and you know something? This death is odd. That's not how people die in crucifixion. This 
To, to everyone who is familiar with the scene, for those soldiers who, who every day dealt with this sort of thing, something is off. Something seems wrong. Do you understand that when people die of crucifixion, they don't die right away. And they don't die with a shout. They don't die with a loud cry. They actually lapse into a coma and die of asphyxiation. The whole process typically takes two to three days. And it's because of this, we have to understand the words of Christ in John 10 when he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In other words, Jesus, being God and master over life and death, has laid down his own life, has given it up. In this moment, he knows the debt has been paid, and it's now time to depart from this life. Luke says it this way, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Matthew says Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The point is when the debt is paid, he allows his body to die and his spirit to proceed on into the Father's hands. And in that moment, in that second, the Father sends a powerful message to the people of Israel and from them to the whole world. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain was about 80 feet tall. No man is going to split that from top to bottom unless he's got a ladder and it's pretty obvious. If a man were to split it, it would be from bottom to top. But this is literally the hand of God shredding the fabric because the son has paid the debt in full and that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the sanctuary, that curtain which hindered access to God is now torn asunder by his own atoning sacrifice on the cross. It's only the second time in all of Mark's gospel he uses the word torn, by the way. First time being at the baptism of Jesus when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Excuse me. Because of Christ's death on the cross, the curtain is meaningless. Because of Christ's death on the cross, brothers and sisters, this morning, as the writer of Hebrews so eloquently says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The Christian's debt has been paid. Can we not say hallelujah? And he pans back further and we begin to see the centurion and the women. In verse 39, Mark says, When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. 
A centurion was typically a Roman soldier who was in charge of a hundred men. And yet this one was in charge of watching over the crucifixions. This was not likely his first crucifixion, nor would it be his last. This man stood for six hours watching Jesus die. And yet, like I said, Jesus' crucifixion was odd. It was different. The way he breathed his last. The words he'd heard him issue on the cross. The darkness in the sky. All of these things compel this man, this soldier, to say the words truly, this man was the Son of God. This actually mirrors the very first words Mark writes in his gospel account. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Note that only three times in all of Mark's gospel is Jesus straight told or or is the crowd told that he is directly God's son. It's the three most vital points in his life. It's at his baptism, when a voice from the heavens says, this is my son. At the transfiguration, where a voice from the heavens says, this is my son. And at the crucifixion where a weathered soldier says this man was the son of God. Matthew tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The earth shook. The rocks split. Tombs were opened. Bodies of the saints were raised from death. All these things take place. No wonder the centurion is in awe of this man's death. Matthew continues, he says the centurion's portion like this. He says, when the centurion and those who were with him kept watch over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. And when he says truly here, church tradition and the way we understand what he's saying there, truly, this is the centurion speaking for himself. As a matter of fact, as as honestly as he can be with himself, truly here. This is a fact. And they're filled with awe or they're filled with fear. And this is the awareness of of someone knowing their sin and feeling their conviction that leads to faith. And that's why in church history we believe this centurion is one one of the earliest converts right after Christ's death to believe in Christ, to become a believer himself. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And that's not exactly what the centurion says, but many assume this is as good of a profession of faith as one can get in the moment. In that moment, if someone as far east as someone in China could know that the sins have been pardoned, perhaps even here, the centurion understands the debt of his sin has been paid. And verse 40 reads, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. Mark makes it a point to mention these women and it it jives, it, it synchronizes, it aligns with John's gospel. Mary Magdalene, of course, she's from a town, a village called Magdala. It was on the, the, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Luke's gospel tells us at one point she had seven demons cast out of her. Mary, the mother of James the Younger, sometimes called the Other Mary. She's likely Jesus' aunt, or at least the, the sister-in-law of Jesus' own mother, perhaps even her own sister She's the, younger of James, or she's the mother of James the Younger or James the Smaller One. 
And he was possibly one of the 12 disciples mentioned. James and Joseph are mentioned as Jesus' brothers in Mark 6, 3, when they say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph? Well, there actually isn't a, a word for cousin. There is, but Paul's the only one who ever uses it in the New Testament. So they're a male relative is the idea. And of course, Salome, who's mentioned, we've known a little bit about her husband, a man named Zebedee, the mother of James and John. She's only mentioned here in Mark, but Matthew explains who she is. These women are significant in his life, and they're significant here in his death. Verse 41 says, When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Mark mentions these women not for some feminist agenda or some equality statement that should, should be now applied to today's politics or anything like that. But he does mention them when the male disciples are noticeably absent. Well, why would he do that? Because Mark was writing to a persecuted church who was having the men arrested and the women had to step up and lead and take care of their families. And so doing this, he's encouraging the women of the church to remain faithful, to be steadfast, to stay strong in the face of persecution, just as these women were. These women ministered to Jesus. That means they, they served him. Luke tells us they helped fund his ministry. They provided for them out of their means. And they followed him to Jerusalem. They were in the crowd that journeyed, and, and they remained there with him following him even to the cross. Something else to note about Mark's gospel, only two creatures, and I only use the word creature not out of disrespect to women, but because uh, there's only two creatures who ever actually minister to Jesus in his gospel, and it's angels and women. This can't be lost on us. They are eyewitnesses to the event of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You understand that in this day and age, when this happens, women's testimony means nothing. And if the disciples were fabricating a story, if the disciples were to try and lie about any of these things, they would not put that women were the first people to notice these things or the first people to see these things. Because to Peter and James and John and the rest, that's embarrassing. The women were more faithful than they were. This is more evidence of the truth of the matter. That these women believed not just enough to give him money, but enough to follow him all the way to his death. And then Mark pans back just a little bit further in verses 42 and 40, 43. When the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. And went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. You still have to remember, this is Friday of the Passover weekend. This is a, a holiday weekend. Food is meant to be prepared before sunset, before the Sabbath is to begin. There's traditions, there's laws that have to be upheld in this moment, that have to be respected. So there's a rush to what follows after this. John tells us in John 19, 31, 32, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. 
that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who'd been crucified with him. You see, the Romans, they don't care if the bodies are left on the cross. In fact, many times in crucifixions, the Romans would leave the bodies hanging until they needed the cross again, until they needed the lumber, or until it just fell. They don't care about that. But for the Jewish people, this is a disgrace. This is something they don't want. They don't want to leave the bodies hanging. This is actually in the law of Moses. If a man's committed a crime punishable by death, this is Deuteronomy 21, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so you enter this man, Joseph, of Arimathea. And while he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, Luke tells us he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. He didn't consent, but in that moment amongst his friends, he didn't stand for Christ either. Mark tells us they all condemned him. When everything was getting real, Joseph stayed quiet. Joseph wouldn't stand. And yet now, not only is he standing for Christ, he's not alone. He has a friend, this man named Nicodemus. John tells us Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, just Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin. Both of them remaining quiet all this time while their Savior, while their, their friend was ridiculed, mocked, crucified. They couldn't stand for Jesus while he lived, but for him they will become unclean for the holiday. They will sacrifice their Sabbath during Passover by caring for his broken, bo- broken body. You understand, this is an act of faith that these two men perform. They step out of their role as pious, religious zealots. And in this moment, they become Jesus' unclean undertakers as they care for his body because they cared for him. And now, Mark tells us that uh, Joseph took courage. Now he'll stand for Jesus. Now he's not ashamed to admit it. Now when yeah, it might cost me being on a cross too. I don't care. Can I have his body and show him some dignity and bury him? Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. Why is Pilate surprised? Well, remember, sometimes it took two or three days for someone who was crucified to die. Pilate marvels because maybe the soldiers went too far in their scourging. Maybe they beat him too hard, too much. Maybe they tortured him too much prior to nailing him to the cross. Surely not. These men were professionals. So what happened? That's what he's trying to figure out here. Surely this Jesus was fit enough to withstand all this. But remember, Jesus' death is not because he'd endured too much torture, but because he chose to release his spirit, something only Jesus could do. Verse 45 reads, And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And just quickly, that word granted there is eterosato. It means he gave the body as a gift. Pilate thought he was doing Joseph a favor here. 
And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Joseph and Nicodemus likely didn't just do this by themselves. They probably had servants helping them. They were wealthy men. And this burial actually fulfills Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had, no, had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It's referring to them being crucified between two robbers and laid in a rich man's tomb. Of course, Joseph's own tomb he'd reserved for himself, for his own inevitable death, something the elderly man probably had not intended to use for some time, but yet here he is. Matthew says he laid, in, laid the corpse in his own new tomb, which he'd had cut out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. John's gospel tells us he won't take Jesus very far. The tomb was in the place where Jesus had been crucified, and so he is buried. His death confirmed. They didn't embalm the bodies, but they anointed him with oils. They, they put aloes and, and ointments on his body. They wrapped him up and they placed him there. And verse 47 reads, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Again, Mark makes it very clear that these ladies watch what happens. And in a couple of days, they're going to play their part in the resurrection. This burial happens so that we know there's confirmation that he truly died. There's speculation from other religions and other people and, and secular scholars even today who will try to say Jesus didn't really die. Or maybe that it was someone else had been, who'd been crucified. Well, the women ensure the fact that he was actually buried, that he was dead. Joseph and Nicodemus surely knew his body, knew who he was, and, and as they wrap him, they confirm it was, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified that day, not some disciple taking his place, not some friend or an identical twin or anything like that. There are those who doubt the meaning of his death, but the centurion confirms it for us as well, that, tr that truly this man was the Son of God. Even today, there are those who will deny his lordship, who will deny he was God incarnate. But the fact remains. The curtain is torn in two, the sky grew dark, and God in his love for his creation sent his son to be an atonement for our sin. The debt is paid. Tetelestai, it is paid in full. I'm going to ask the ushers to come back, or not the ushers, sorry, the musicians to come back this morning. You know, it's in that moment that we, when we feel the weight of our sin, when the wrath of God was poured out upon him, that the sinner is given an open door to freedom. This is the truth we live for. This is the truth we die for. This is the truth we suffer for. It's the love of God that places Jesus upon the cross. It is his justice where the atonement takes place. You understand the cross is the cost of forgiveness. And whether you've heard it once or a billion times, this is the time and place to find reconciliation with God, to find healing, to find true spiritual wholeness. If you've not submitted your life to Christ, if you're watching online, if you've not submitted your life to Christ, if you've never accepted this atonement, 
I would challenge you, I would plead with you that in humility you, you cry out to Jesus who shed his blood for you. And maybe you're here and, and you're struggling with sin. Maybe you're just here and you're just struggling with doubt or hurt. We all do at times. I would challenge you that in humility to plead your case to Christ as well because he shed his blood for you too. Will you stand this morning as we close in worship?